Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, I love science. I always have. I grew up loving science. And I think one of the factors that led to that was actually the fact that Fermilab was just down the street from us. We grew up in uh, this part of the state, and uh, my dad would every once in a while take me down to Fermilab, which at the time was the most powerful particle accelerator in the world. And we would go see the herds of bison that they keep on the land there. And he would describe for me how they were smashing atoms together to discover the basic building blocks of matter. And I thought it was so incredible. He'd cut out newspaper clippings of their discoveries and I'd eat them up. And I just, I just found this so fascinating that these scientists were unlocking the mysteries of how the universe worked. Ever since then, I have always been fascinated by new scientific discoveries. Now, it's always amazing to see what people are figuring out about the world around us. But the more I learn about science, the more I impress not simply by what we have discovered, but how much we just, just don't know. Take the oceans, for example. The oceans right here on our planet. Do you realize that only 10% of the ocean floor has been mapped by modern technology? 10%. 80% of the oceans have, are, are completely unexplored and unobserved by humanity. We just don't know what's going on there. Uh, much of what happens on the inside of our planet, we don't know. We got basic ideas of what's going on below the crust, but we don't know what, how it really works. In between our own ears, how does this brain that we have that's sort of running everything in our life, how does that work? Well, we're still trying to figure that out. Astronomers look up into the heavens and they see billions of stars and billions of galaxies. But we've recently found out that 95% of all, everything that's in the universe is completely unobservable to us. And I don't just mean we haven't seen it yet. I mean, we aren't capable of seeing it. It's what's called dark matter or dark energy. And we can see some of its effects, but we can't observe it directly. And we don't know what it is. I could go on. We can figure out a whole lot of things as human beings, but the truth is this, our level of ignorance is so profound, we don't even know how much we don't know. (laughs) What do we do when we run into the limits of our understanding? And I, I don't just mean all the stuff with science and research, I mean even just in our own lives, when we don't know what to do and we don't know why things are going the way they are. This is the third week in our series in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. As a church, we've been reading through Ecclesiastes as part of our Bible reading plan called Bible Savvy. And if you've been reading Ecclesiastes this week, you've probably discovered that this is a a little bit different sort of book of the Bible than a lot of the other ones. Uh, I like to think of Ecclesiastes as uh, like the guy at the party who's sort of standing off in the corner and he's like all dressed in black and he's standing there sort of chuckling to himself and you, you sort of walk up to him and you're like, engaging in conversation, but he's kind of cynical, kind of sarcastic. It's not that he's mean, but he's sort of just sort of laughing at the situation going on, and he keeps bringing up death for some reason, and you're like, okay, I need to go get a refill right now. But there are some of you who, when you hear this guy, you're like, oh, this party just got interesting. But either way, you're thinking, who invited this guy? How did he get in here? I, for one, am thankful that Ecclesiastes is in the Bible. I actually think that if the book of Ecclesiastes wasn't in the Bible, I might not be a Christ follower. It's not that the book itself shored up my faith or saved uh, my, my belief in God, but the fact that the book could make it in the Bible says a lot to me. 
I heard someone once describe that there are two types of Christ followers. There are summer Christians and there are winter Christians. And summer Christians, for them, life with God is often bright. It's not that they don't face hard times. They just tend to keep their spirits up. They got a lot of hope, a lot of joy. Trusting in God comes with a childlike confidence. Every day is full of God sightings and answers to prayer and little miracles here and there. They see God at work. Winter Christians, on the other hand, it's not that they have more trouble than summer Christians. It's just that the troubles of life trouble them more. They, they trust God, but they don't accept simplistic answers to hard questions. They'll, they'll draw near to God just like summer Christians, but, but they come with their questions and their, their complaints. That when they're close to God, it's less like a bear hug and more like wrestling. If you're a summer Christian, Ecclesiastes is going to bother you. But if you're a winter Christian like me, you're going to finally feel like someone gets you. That's why I'm thankful for the book of Ecclesiastes. Because if this guy can be invited to the party, then I can be invited to the party. Today we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 6 through 8. Three different chapters here. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, we're going to start in chapter 7 and bounce around a little bit. It's kind of an all-over-the-place set of chapters, so we're going to move uh, quite a bit. Uh, if you open up your Bible right to the middle, you're going to find the book of Psalms. And if you go just to the right, uh, you'll run into Ecclesiastes. The theme of these chapters, one of the main themes, is wisdom. Wisdom. And so we're going to look at three aspects of what it means to be wise. We're going to start with this. We're going to start with the pursuit of wisdom. The pursuit of wisdom. Let me start by defining what I mean by wisdom. Wisdom is practical knowledge. Practical knowledge. Now, a lot of people, when you hear the word wise, you picture something like Yoda or Gandalf or some monk on a mountain pondering the mysteries of the universe. It's something where they speak in riddles and they're eccentric and sort of removed from life. It's got this vibe of sort of, sort of being detached so you can think about the deeper and higher things, sort of a step away from the practical day-to-day -day things of life. When the Bible uses the word wisdom, it means the exact opposite of that. Wisdom is not removed from practical life. Wisdom is on-the-ground know-how in ordinary situations. Wisdom is about how to manage your money well. Wisdom is how to make good decisions at work. Wisdom is about how to communicate clearly and persuasively. It's about knowing how to be a good friend or leader, spouse or citizen. A wise person is someone who is skilled at life. Uh, one way to think about wisdom is that it's what covers all the areas that the rules don't apply to. Okay, the rules are really important, and the, the Bible has a bunch of rules in them, but a lot of people think that that's what the Bible is all about. It's all about the commands. If you just do that, you've got things figured out. But have you ever thought about how limited the rules and the commands, even in the Bible, are? Like rules give you boundaries to life, but they don't fill in the details. So if you're, you're playing a sport, if you're playing basketball, the rules will tell you what's out of bounds, what's a foul, what counts as traveling, and they're very important, but they're not the focus of the game. And they will not tell you how to be a good basketball player. The, the rules don't tell you what the best defense is. It doesn't tell you when to take a three-point shot. To do that, you've actually got to be wise at the game of basketball. The same is true with the rules in the Bible. Take, for example, the command, do not commit adultery. It's a very important boundary marker for a marriage, right? But if you have a basically healthy marriage, you spend very little time and energy just trying to keep that rule. The rule is important, but once you're keeping it, it offers you no guidance of how to be a good husband or a good wife. It doesn't tell you what to say to your spouse when you come home from work or how to share a bathroom with them, or how to respond when they burst into tears, how to encourage laughter and playfulness in your marriage. 
The, the rules give you boundaries and they're good, but they don't tell you what to do within the boundaries. That's where wisdom comes in. The goal for you, God's goal for you, is not that you'd be good at keeping the rules. Now, that's key, obedience is important. It's the foundation to living well, but obeying rules is just the starting point. It's not the goal. God's goal for Adam and Eve there in the garden was not simply that they'd avoid that one tree. His goal for them was that they would go out and enjoy the rest of the garden and fill the world with beauty and wonder. God's goal is within the bounds of his created, his created rules that you would live wisely. And isn't that what we all want to do? I mean, life is complex, isn't it? It's challenging. And I would love to be better at it than I am. That's the reason millions of people read productivity blogs and listen to leadership podcasts and why people go online and they look up workout routines and diets. It's why parents trade tips on how to get their kids to eat vegetables. We probably wouldn't use the word wisdom to describe these things. We call them self-help or life hacks or advice. But that's what they are. They're attempts to find wisdom, practical knowledge on how to live well. The Bible has an entire group of books called wisdom literature. And Ecclesiastes is one of these. But the most famous, the most classic example of wisdom literature is actually the book of Proverbs. And most of the other books in the Bible that are wisdom books are actually responding to Proverbs. Proverbs is kind of the starting point for, for wisdom. And all the other books, they're adding complexity and nuance to what Proverbs has to say. And in these chapters in Ecclesiastes, it's particularly important to know what the main message of the book of Proverbs is, because this is supposed to be uh, sort of another angle on that idea. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to read to you a little bit from Proverbs chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. But I think this is going to help you get a sense of what the heart of the, the message of the book of Proverbs is, which will make sense out of this section of Ecclesiastes. It says this, Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. Long life is in her right hands, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked. The wise inherit honor, but fools get only shame. Let's thank God, to Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, those are some pretty lofty claims, aren't they? That wisdom brings all the things you could ever want in life, riches and honor and a good night's sleep. Oh my goodness, you can tell that the author had young children. Oh. <laughs> Here's how I'd summarize the message of Proverbs. In general, if you are wise, life will go better for you. In general, if you're wise, life will go better for you. But why is that? Why, why can wisdom bring such good things? is because true wisdom understands the way God made the world. The, the Bible says that the world was made by God, who is this creative artist, this skilled craftsman, this brilliant engineer, and that's the reason why the world is full of beauty and order. And wisdom is learning to understand that beauty and that order so that you can live in sync with it. Wisdom is living with the grain of the universe, so to speak. It's singing in harmony with the song of creation. And because of that, if you live wisely, you are working with and not against the way things work. 
Think about it, if you've been walking down the sidewalk and you, you pick the side of the sidewalk where everybody's walking towards you, how does it feel? You're bumping into people, you're jostling, it slows you down. But you pick the side of the sidewalk where everybody's going the same direction and you get to where you're going faster, quicker, and with less frustration, right? That's the way wisdom works. One way is foolish and one way is wise because this way in general works better. You're working with the flow of traffic. And so Proverbs rightly says that if you're wise, in general, life's gonna go better for you. That's the main idea. Now, when you turn the page to Ecclesiastes, the message is similar, but a little bit different. Ecclesiastes agrees that wisdom is a good thing. It's something that you should pursue. Uh, Look at chapter seven, verse 11. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. It benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Verse 19 says this. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. That sounds a lot like Proverbs, doesn't it? These big claims of what wisdom can do for you. But if you've been reading the book of Ecclesiastes this week, you know that's not how most of the book feels, that that optimistic tone. Ecclesiastes agrees with Proverbs about the value and importance of pursuing wisdom, but it wants us to take the next step. And here's the second point. Ecclesiastes doesn't just want us to pursue wisdom, it wants us to know the limits of wisdom, the limits of wisdom. It is true that in general, if you are wise, life will go better for you. But Proverbs, what Proverbs does is focuses on that last part of the sentence, that life is gonna go better for you. But Ecclesiastes focuses on the first part, in general, in general. It asks the question, okay, well, where does that break down? It may be true in general, that means there's some places where it doesn't actually apply, where it doesn't work out that way. There are lots of people who will read a verse from the book of Proverbs. And they'll see that good advice there and they'll say, this is a promise from God. If I do this, here's how it's gonna work out. One of the most famous ones is the proverb that says, train up a child in the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. And parents will look at that and they'll say, okay, if I work hard, if I raise my kid well, they're gonna turn out all right. And so they do that. But you know what happens sometimes? Their kid walks away, makes a mess of their life. They don't trust Jesus. They don't follow God. And that parent has left, not just with the heartbreak of what's happening to their child, but also they look at the Bible and they say, but I thought there was a promise there. If I did this, this is how it would work out. What gives? You take another proverb. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands lead to wealth. And so you think, well, okay, if I work hard, that means I'm going to be rich, right? Like I'm not going to be lazy. I'm going to work hard. I'll make money. But then you work your tail off day in and day out, and you're still trying to make ends meet. And you look at the world and you think, you know what? People living at the poverty line, a lot of them work just as hard as people making six figures. What's going on here? I thought the Bible said, if you work hard, you're gonna be rich. And so you look at those Proverbs and if you think they're a promise, you're gonna be really, really frustrated. But this is where Ecclesiastes comes along. And the reason Ecclesiastes is so pessimistic sounding is because it's exploring the breakdown of those principles, the limits of wisdom. It's showing the places where, in general, just doesn't cover it. So this is what's happening at the beginning of chapter 6. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor, so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. 
tells the story of someone who ought to be able to enjoy a good life. They've got a whole lot of things going for them, but something in their life, some circumstance prevents them from actually enjoying it. Doesn't say what, but you can imagine all kinds of scenarios, can't you? An unexpected diagnosis, a contentious divorce, a mental illness, an unjust lawsuit. In this passage, they're talking about someone who actually gets some wealth but can't use it. But in other places in Ecclesiastes, it focuses on situations where nothing's working out. The end of chapter 8, verse 14, it says this, there's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. According to Proverbs, this is not how things are supposed to work. The wise, the righteous, in general, their life's supposed to be better. But Ecclesiastes says, not always. Wisdom is good, but it is not a guarantee. And that makes wisdom a really tricky thing. Maybe you noticed in that last verse I read, a key term that is repeated again and again in Ecclesiastes came up. It's the word meaningless, meaningless. Uh, Pastor Jim highlighted this the first week in the series, that every scholar of the book of Ecclesiastes and even the people who translated the Bible will tell you that it is almost impossible to find a single English word that corresponds to the idea of the Hebrew term that's translated meaningless here. The the Hebrew word is actually hevel, hevel. I want you to say that with me, hevel. And some uh, translations translate hevel as meaningless, some as vanity, some as fleeting, some as futile, but none of those words capture it completely. Part of the reason for that is that hevel is more of an image than a concept. it's, uh, It's the image of breath, or vapor. So my advice is this, when you're reading through the book of Ecclesiastes and you come across that word meaningless, you should picture in your mind a puff of smoke and someone trying to grab the puff of smoke. What happens? It's just poof, it just disappears, right? If something is hevel, it eludes your grip. It slips through your fingers. You cannot pin it down. When the NIV here translates it meaningless, the idea is not that there's no meaning to these things. It's that the meaning is just really hard to figure out. It escapes you. And wisdom is like that. You can come up with all the principles and all the systems. You can have all the strategies for making your life work. You can follow the best practices. You can optimize your life. But as wise as you are, you cannot guarantee success. You will not have the solution to everything. It will slip through your fingers. You won't get an explanation. And it will be hevel. Even the wisest person is limited in their wisdom. Ecclesiastes actually highlights three particular places where wisdom is limited, three places where it breaks down. Here's the first one. The fact that we are finite. We are finite. Theme comes up several times in these chapters. Look at uh, chapter 7, verses uh, 13 and 14. It says this, Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. This goes back to what we talked about last week. God is in control. Ultimately, our circumstances are not in our own hands. And because of this, it's impossible to know what's coming in the future. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 7 says it this way. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? Everything about this, you know, wisdom, making a wise choice is an exercise in predicting the future. That's what you're trying to do. You're you're trying to decide what action right now is gonna lead to the best outcomes in the future. So if I take this job, is my future gonna be better or worse? 
If I date this girl, is there a future to our relationship? If I make this investment, is it gonna pay out in the long run? That, that's what wisdom is. It's the skill of making choices that will turn out well in the future. But guess what? None of us owns a crystal ball or a time turner or a DeLorean. You cannot figure out the future. We are not God. We are not outside of time. We are not God, the one who sees the end from the beginning. We are not God, the one who writes the story of history. We are finite. We are finite. So why chapter 7, verse 23 says this. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I'm determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? Here's the second limit to our wisdom. The fact that we are mortal. We are mortal. Look back at the start of chapter 7. It says this, A good name is better than fine perfume. In the day of death, better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. One of the realities we all have to face is the fact that we are going to die. This is a limit on wisdom because it doesn't matter how wise you are. You cannot outsmart death. There is no life hack for immortality. This is one of the great temptations for successful people. When you have, made, have a history of making good choices, of coming out on top, you, you start to behave as if you're never going to die. You, you might know it as a fact, but you don't act like it. You have won every game. You have aced every test you've ever taken, but you cannot pass this one. This is a no-win scenario. You, you can make the best decisions in life. You can raise your kids to be successful. You can pick the best investment options. You can maintain incredible personal health, but eventually... No matter how well you do in life, it all comes to an end. Wisdom is amazing, but it will not help you live forever. That's why we have to face the reality of death before we get there. I want to say more about this, but we're actually going to devote a lot of next week's message to talking about this theme. So we'll, we'll talk about that next week. Here's a third limitation of wisdom. We are sinful. We're sinful. All, all of us. Ecclesiastes just says it very directly. Chapter 7, verse 20 says this. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. And just a few verses later, verse 27, he says it like this. Look, says the teacher, this is what I've discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Okay, time out. We're going to do a little pause. Oh, gosh. Um, okay, if I don't address this, it's all you're going to be thinking about. So does the Bible think that some guys can be all right, but no women can? Um, is this just biblical chauvinism? No. This is a form of poetry from another culture and another time that says things differently than the way we would in our culture. Hebrew poetry uses a, a technique called parallelism means that it writes poetry in pairs of lines. The, the two lines in the poem are meant to be read together to communicate one idea, not two. Okay, so you read both of those ideas together and they contribute to one thought. 
So sometimes one of the, the techniques that you'll see all the time in the Bible is you'll see these two lines in the poem and they'll simply say the exact same thing just with different words. So a, a famous example, Psalm 100 says, God's love endures forever. His faithfulness continues to all generations. Now those are basically the same thought just with different words. Another common technique is to do this, to start one line with a number in it and then to have the second line have that number plus one. So it says this, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. And then it goes on to say two things that you're going to hear from God. Uh, there's a, a famous verse that says this, there are six things that the Lord hates and seven things are detestable to him. It's a cumulative effect of saying, all right, here we build up to seven things that God doesn't like. The point is not the contrast between the two lines. The point is the cumulative effect of the two lines. One point they're making. So in this case, the point is not this. You know, men are pretty bad, but women, wow, they are the worst. That's not what it means. The point is this, nobody, not men, not women, nobody is upright. None of us are the way we're supposed to be. You can line up a thousand men and a thousand women and you might find one decent person among them, but none of us are good. The point is not the contrast between the genders, the point is the contrast between how God made humans to live and how we actually live. That's why the next verse, verse 29, goes on to say this. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. This is one of the limits to wisdom. All of us are bent and broken from what God made us to be. This is the reason why the smartest, most skilled people in the world can still end up screwing up their lives. This is why the most educated societies can be riddled with racism and greed. This is why your very best plans can be foiled by selfishness, your selfishness or someone else's. Because wisdom is not enough. I mean, this was Solomon's problem, wasn't it? The, the wisest guy who ever lived. But you read 1 Kings, the story of his life, and you realize wisdom didn't uh, prevent him from royally ruining his personal life and the country that he was leading. He had 700 wives. 300 concubines, and those women led him into idolatry. He, he wanted to build up his cities and make a name for himself, and so he enslaved people, and he took groups from the country that he didn't belong to, and he made them work for him. His policies created so much conflict that as soon as he died, the nation erupted into civil war. Wisdom is not enough, because just because you know what you should do doesn't mean you actually want to do it. We are sinful. You are and every person you ever interact with. And that limits the effectiveness of our wisdom, our best plans. Now, this is probably sounding a little bit hopeless. <laughs> so let me take the next step. There is a silver lining to facing these limits to wisdom. I actually think facing it can make you wiser. Uh, one of the books that we're recommending as part of this series, it's called Living Life Backward. The author says this, the wisest thing you can do is to realize that not even being wise will tell you everything you wanna know. Part of living wisely is learning to live with the limitations of wisdom itself. True wisdom sees that wisdom is not the solution to life's deepest problems. We cannot be smart enough, savvy enough, shrewd enough to ensure a good life. We have to find another place to put our hope. And this is where the third point comes in. This is where we discover the heart of wisdom, the heart of wisdom. Here's the message that Ecclesiastes comes back to again and again. This is the way Pastor Jim summarized it last week. Fear God and enjoy life. Fear God 
and enjoy life. That, according to Ecclesiastes, is the heart of wisdom. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it is better for, with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Does that phrase bother you? Fear God? I mean, I get the idea of loving God. I get the idea of trusting God, even obeying God. But fearing God, trembling before him, I mean, it sounds kind of unpleasant. Like, isn't God our, our friend? Isn't he our, our good shepherd, our loving father? He is. But he's also our king, and he's our maker. With just a word, he brought you into existence, and with just a word, he could take you out. He is the one who determines our fate. Our life is in his hands. And that should be a sobering, even a terrifying thought. If you have never been shaken by that thought, that your life is not in your own hands, but it's in someone else's, you have not taken seriously who it is you're dealing with when you're talking about God. But as scary as that thought might be, I actually think it's good news. It's something we need to hear. Because here's the reality. If you're a human being, you fear something. You fear something. Everybody has something that they think is gonna make or break their life. That there is something that if, if you lose that, all is lost. If it, you're on its bad side, you will suffer. And whatever that is, that will be the source of your anxiety and fear in life. If for you, it's money, you're always gonna be anxious about your budget, about the ups and downs of the economy. If it's the opinions of other people, you're always gonna be anxious about your image. If it's your health, you're gonna obsess over food and exercise and worry about every sign and symptom of aging. Whatever you think will make or break your life, whether it's your career or your romantic relationships or your politics or whatever, it will be the source of your fear. So this is what it means if you fear God. When you believe that at the core of your being, God, what he does and what he thinks is the thing that will make or break your life. When you believe that he holds your life in his hands, it means that nothing else does. Nothing else does. All those things you thought would make or break you, they can't. Only he can so when you fear God, you need not fear anything else. Uh, last week in my community group, we were talking about this idea of fearing God. And I asked the group, what, why is it that we should fear God? And my friend Ryan said something really insightful. He said, we fear God because God is the only thing that isn't hevel. God is the only thing that isn't hevel. I actually think that gets at the heart of this book of Ecclesiastes. God is the only one who is solid and firm. He's the only one who isn't fleeting. He isn't a passing puff of smoke. He is the only one who isn't stuck under the sun. He's the only one who isn't limited. If we are gonna find hope in this life, it's not gonna come through our own wisdom. It's gonna come by fearing God. And this is what leads to the second half of the message of the book, enjoying life, enjoying life. Uh, chapter 8, verse 15 goes on to say this. It's the refrain of the book. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better than for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of their life that God has given them under the sun. When, when we fear God, when we let go of the vice grip on our life, we can rest in the fact that he holds us in his hands. And so we can actually start to enjoy life that we've been given. Or to put it another way, we can actually embrace the fact that we're human and that's okay. We, we don't have to know everything. We don't have to be in control of everything. We don't actually have to be God. And so we can rest. 
We can take a breath. When you're a kid, the idea of a birthday party is the biggest deal in the world, right? Like it's, it's like the, the hugest thing. It's going to be so cool when this birthday party happens because your friends are going to come over and you're going to get presents and there's going to be food and cake and there might even be a bounce house and you're going to wear a ridiculous pointy hat and it's going to be awesome like the best day ever right and so you build up the anticipation you think oh this is how it's going to go and certain kids you might even have a plan like a a vision of this is going to be the perfect day my friends are going to come over we're going to play around to pin the tail on the donkey then we're going to go open presents and there, there's going to be a, a Nerf gun and there's going to, there, there, you know, there, there's going to be a G.I. Joe and this is what's in there. And we're going to have cake and it's going to be a chocolate cake. And this, it's this whole plan, this vision of how it's going to go. But then your friends show up, right? And instead of playing pin the tail on the donkey, someone's like, hey, let's do hide and seek. And all the kids run off and do that. And you're like, wait, that's not, that's not my plan. And instead of a Nerf gun, you get Legos. And instead of chocolate cake, it's funfetti. And it rains. You can't even use the bounce house. And it's like, your plan is just ruined. It's not going the way it's supposed to. Now, depending on what type of person you are, you're going to do one of two things. Some of you are going to try to control the situation. You're going to start bossing all the other kids around. No, I said we're going to do this. You're going to whine about the toy you didn't get. And you're going to, you know, you're just going to try to take control of the party, right? Now, does that kid enjoy the party? No, not at all. It's ruined for them. Or you could say this, you know what, this wasn't what I expected, but my friends are still here. This is still a good gift. And I mean, what was I thinking? Pin the tail on the donkey is like super awkward and embarrassing, like hide and seek all the way. This is great. You receive the party as a gift. Guess what happens? Even though it's not what you planned, you enjoy it. You delight in it because you're not in control. Now, I get that this analogy is not perfect. I'm not saying that life is always a party. Not everything is funfetti and Legos. Life is really hard. But I do think it's a picture of how our posture ought to change if we know that God is in control. We we can loosen our grip on life. We can let God be God. And it actually takes the weight off our shoulders. And that is the heart of wisdom, according to Ecclesiastes. Now, I want to wrap up by addressing a question that, that lurks behind this message. And actually, really, this entire series And the question is this, how do I know I can actually trust God like that? I mean, it's all well and good to say, you know, God's in control, trust him. You can't understand everything that's going on, just enjoy the ride. Sounds nice, but sometimes it feels like getting into the back of a taxi in a city that you don't know, and that driver who you've got to trust is a good driver is going to take you someplace you don't know how to get to. How do you know that God is actually a good driver? How do you know he knows the way? Because honestly, sometimes it feels like he's very unsafe and he's lost. What is going on with my life? Here's how you know you can trust him. Because of what we're about to celebrate in communion. When God himself showed up on earth, you know what he did? He did not go to the places where life was working out perfectly, where where wisdom was just running smoothly. He went to the places where things were broken down. He went to the places of limits. He, He took on human flesh and human finitude. He he took on human mortality and he went to his death. And not just any old death, he he died one of the most painful, humiliating deaths possible. He he didn't become sinful, but he did take on the effects of sin. He, He suffered the injustice of society breaking down. He carried the guilt and the shame that we have earned for what we have done. And he took the penalty that we deserved. Why would he do that? so that he could offer us hope for life beyond the sun, so that he could give us hope in the places where wisdom breaks down, where life doesn't work.
And here's the thing you got to realize. If he was willing to do all of that for you, I promise you, I promise you, he is not going to bring some circumstance into your life that he knows is going to destroy you. You can trust him with your life because he gave his life for you. In fact, trusting someone like that is the wisest thing you can do. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are the one with perfect wisdom. And we want to live wise lives. We want to pursue wisdom day in and day out. We know that it will go well for those who seek your wisdom. But God, we, we want to be honest. We feel worn out and broken down by the ways when things just don't work out the way they're supposed to. And so we, we say to you, we put our trust in you. We know you hold our lives in your hands. And so we pray that you would give us the grace to actually rest in that. To actually enjoy the good gifts that you give. To receive them as a blessing from your hand and be thankful for them. And to trust you when things feel out of control. God, we pray that as we celebrate communion together now, that you would remind us again, your spirit would uh, make us aware of what your son did for us. That we would see the sacrifice, we would see the love, we would see all that he offered. And that would build our trust and faith in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.